second episode of 2020, and it's her first motocross rider. Uh, could only be Ireland's best motocross rider of all time, Gordon Crockard. Uh, Gordy sat opposite me, and he's probably going to deflect that and say that Lawrence Spence or somebody else uh, was better than him. Typically Northern Irish, uh, modestly, but yeah, I think results-based. He's the best rider we've ever had from uh, this island. Championship-wise, uh, yeah, what you've just said does does point towards supporting that. You know, I finished third in the world. I won four World Motocross Grand Prix rounds. Uh, nobody else has matched that so far. So, yeah, you're probably right with that. Um, you know, for me, I think of my heroes from Ireland who inspired me, and I still think that they were better than I was. And... And I think that on the days that I won world championship events, the, the other guys just didn't go fast. They were just, <laughs> you know, off form that day. You got um, lucky as well. You almost I was thought. just, yeah, I'm, I'm not riding against the good guys. They're they're all retired now. Yeah, I'm just riding against these, these other guys my age. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's, a, it's a factual thing that, that's stated there in the records um, of my achievements. And um, there's, no, uh, there's no arguing with that, really, is there? No, and you were a hero for a lot of us growing up now, with myself and Johnny Ray in World Sort of Bikes, but we came from motocross, and what you were doing, then as we were kids, we were looking up, of course, we were watching on Sunday morning, so Jeremy McWilliams was doing the thing on Tarmac, but we were tuning in to, to watch what you were doing on uh, in motocross, and there's not many years between us, I think you're 40 now, 39, 41, 40? just forty one. yeah. So I'm 33 now, so whenever um, I was bugging you around the schoolboy pits and seeing you riding BMXs and stuff, and then tuning in, watching you riding Grand Prix against my heroes, so suddenly somebody that I was familiar with, Gordy, just that was parked in his red van, parked opposite our red van, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's on TV now, so yeah. I think uh, that's what helps people from little countries like ours, where you can, if somebody does achieve something like that, then you realise, hang on a second, this isn't uh, unachievable, and that's probably why myself and Johnny and my brothers were able to aspire to do what we've done. It, it is inspirational, you know, seeing somebody that you can relate to, um, you know where they live, you're on first name terms, these sorts of things, that they absolutely do give you a sense of belief that, hey, well, if he can do that, well, you know, what can I do? Yeah. Um, and I, I am... Uh, familiar with this on, on a personal level with you know people uh same circumstance uh alan morrison was was my hero at home um alan won a, a motocross grand prix in in the late uh late sorry early 90s and uh was that in the uh, uk he won he won in the uk and the following weekend was in Kalinchi in county down which was huh? You know our club. Um, my dad and all his friends were part of the Kalinchi Club, and we, we built the track, and and I was part of that whole process. And you know to see a guy who, um, we all knew, uh, you know, finish on the podium and win a Grand Prix and all of those things, you just thought to yourself, you know, wow, that's that's doable. You know, if Alan yeah. can can do that, and and you know all of his background, you, you immediately sort of draw a line through the fact that they're superhuman and. They're special. You just sort of think there's an ordinary guy that that has um, has has achieved a, a dream that, that I aspire to, and um, there's many many examples of that that we can all relate to. And well, I say we. I'm sitting in the company of you, um, you know, which is is not a, a normal sportsman. You know, you've reached the elite. Um, you know, so we're we're maybe speaking above the the average sports guy and hobby guy. Um, 
you know, who's but 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 it's all relative. Um, you know, a a, a novice writer can look at an amateur writer and and aspire to be an amateur writer it's just uh having a, a drive to be better um and using the people who are better than you regardless of whatever level it is can be an inspiration as in dressing then you experienced exactly the same as what i just described them with like myself and uh, johnny so every 10 years if there is a role model from your country that trend just seems to, to keep going and that's what produces the champions then? It, it, it takes time you know um you know, kids of today who are coming through and into the sport, I'm too old. They, they don't know who I am. Um, right. they're, they're not young enough to understand. There's definitely a threshold age-wise, um, which which makes a difference. Um, That's true because what you were doing back home whenever British Championship used to come to Desert Martin, it was like the Croc Star logos were everywhere. It was Croc Mania. It was mental. when We used to go to Desert Martin. And even the advertising all the way along, if you went from Belfast to the centre of the universe to Bridge there, the, the signage with the, your name on it and the crowds that used to come out. So that perhaps is the case. The kids maybe weren't born then. So somebody that's 18 years old starting to race in uh, adult motocross, they didn't know what you were doing. And maybe it's the same for me that I wasn't really aware of what Lawrence Spence did and Alan Morrison did. But you were there and you saw what Alan Morrison did. So you're, you were of that generation. So, yeah. Now guys like Martin Barr are doing a great job on the world scene, but um, what you achieved in racing against the the guys that you did, heroes, uh, Mikel Bichon, Chad Reed, and Gordon Crocker's name, right alongside it. You must be pretty proud of that. No, I am. Um, looking back on reflection, you know, of course I am. I I, I don't um, feel that uh, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to you know play down. You know the level that I competed at. Um, I always wanted to win. Um, that was something that I, that I that I I just saw was was as being the best thing to do. Um, I did not win a world championship, but that's okay. That yeah. was not my initial goal. Whenever I set out to be a racer, you know, motocross started out as a hobby. And then I wanted to understand was I any good at it or not. You know, yeah. riding around, just practicing with friends. Even practicing with friends, I wanted to be the fastest guy <laughs> at the practice track with friends. So you still had, you know, I, I, was, I just had that feeling that I wanted to, to you know, to be, the, to be ranked number one. Whether it be in, a, in, a, yeah. in our own little private field practicing or whether it was going to be in the the local Irish Youth Championships. I, I just felt that. So you had a winning mentality. Didn't matter if uh, it, it was around good. the field. Yeah. No, it, it's it's absolute uh, validation that you're doing a good job whenever you you know catch somebody up past them and ride off into the distance. You're the you fastest. Go, yeah, like you, you got to say, what's the point of this? You know, <laughs> what's what's the point of riding? Well, it's fun. It's a nice thrill, and going fast is good, and all the rest. Well, well how fast can I go? And you're like, well, I don't know what's possible. And then you sort of go, well, all right, well, that guy there, he, he's winning the races. He's the fastest guy. Is it possible to go faster than him? Well, let's find out. You know, and if you become the fastest guy, well, then you just feel like the king. Yeah, you know? that's why we um, do it. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, so, so this, just, this just was part of the way that I believed um, to be a happy person was, was to try and be the fastest guy. And, and I equated them to those two things together and it developed into going racing and going racing at 
you know, national, regional level, national level, international and global level. And, yeah. and that's just how it progressed. You know, we, we wanted to win in Ireland. We wanted to win in the UK. We wanted to win in, in the world championships. And that's just, just the way it went. Well, you won in the world scene. You know, you, you beat everybody. There wasn't a faster rider in the world than you uh, on your day. Um, let's talk about when you did start out then, riding around the field, and you did just want to beat the other guy that was riding around the field. So your dad is a bit of a legend, David Crockard. He was uh, handy himself, wasn't he? So yeah, you were uh, a long time before you started racing then, and uh, your dad, he um, he was really, really interesting how he did steer your career, and it seemed to be that he almost had uh, a plan, a little bit like Casey Stoner's dad, whether... Whether it was something that he looks back at now and realizes what he was uh, doing or not, do you ever speak to him about that early stage of your career? It's interesting. I I don't know Casey's story with his father. I can certainly tell you all about mine. Um, you know, my dad had an objective. Um, and and like I mentioned just before, you know, he said, "What's the point? You know, what what are you on the line for? Mm. You know, whenever we finally became." people who went racing he he said well wh- why why are we here you know what's what's the point what's the objective um <laughs> and this is saying this to like a what, 10 year old kid yeah um I've, he actually to be accurate uh he viewed the youth racing scene as practice yeah. in, in his words you know um, when i was racing in in the schoolboy days and and he saw that as learning um Whenever I was 16 and, you know, coming into 17, coming into adulthood, he very much was like, right, now enough's enough. Now now we're racing, you know, we're not learning anymore. Um, And you're on the the start line to to win these races. And and it wasn't a a, a first race you're winning plan. He he always had a, a theory of, it's going to take you three years to get to the top and I suppose the first year you're going to learn the second year you're going to uh, you're going to think that you know how to do it and you're going to make mistakes and then the final year you're going to do it and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to win and and we did that through the different levels of of I suppose standard and championship that we were competing in Um, and and that was something that I just inherited uh, in a mentality way from him you know my uh, feeling was that riding bikes was fun I mm. liked the thrill I liked the um, validation that when you win you're, you're doing a good job and you know you're cool and it's fun and hey <laughs> well done you you're, you're, you're not stupid and, and you can actually coordinate yourself well like that, that that's a great feeling um, but I, I think that without becoming too much of a psychoanalyst, I think ultimately all I was ever trying to do through my entire racing career was seek the validation of my father, yep. um, which most children, I think, will do in some aspect with their parents. They want their parents to say, you're great, we love you, well done, you're really good. And my opportunity to do that with my parents was through doing well at the bike racing yeah um you know so i strived all the time to please my dad um by trying to get race results that he saw as um accurate worthy whatever you want to call it you yeah. know for my standard at that time you know so that was my drive um with him but yeah my dad had a plan 
he kept me away from racing um, until he thought that um, I suppose I'd learnt enough in the youth ranks to, to move into the adult scene and start racing with, with the big boys and coincidentally it all arrived at the same time that moving into the adults you got prize money so when I started racing in the adult scene immediately I, I got it I was like oh there's reward Aye. Um, you know for the risk and for the pain and suffering and, and what I'm having to do on track I'm actually getting rewarded with a few quid in my pocket and with that few quid in my pocket it takes me to do things that I want to do. So And that's well, an important age as well, isn't it? Whenever you're kind well, of, what, 16, 17? Yeah, and so you're money. striving to, you know, have your own independence and not lean on your parents. You know, you're, so the idea of getting a few quid for riding your bike well, yeah. that's like, you know, let's 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 go fast. Aye. You know, I'm going to get money. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was uh, really really good timing uh, so you were so fresh because you hadn't been burned out you were only starting to race from like 10 years of age then you did your few years not you know you're winning in school boy but it wasn't like this is the next sensation you know nowadays they have put all this hype and pressure on kids that uh, whenever they step in that adult ranks believe the hype it's coming whereas you were kind of under the radar and i remember because i was racing junior motocross at that time I even have it in uh, video footage then. I used to go around with the camcorder. There was one winter where you went away and did some trials riding and came back and everybody was just out to watch you because you just changed the way mm. to ride the around Desert Martin. Suddenly you were reeling around the outside of these corners on berms and bumps stood in the pegs. And that was even before Stefan er Everts was doing that. So it's almost like uh, old Davy Crocker did a hotline to Hardy Everts and between the two of them they were talking about the, the influence of trials. And Everts did do trials uh, and it enhanced his motocross and you did the same and that's something I want to ask you is why in the last 20 years why aren't other motocross riders doing that because it clearly works I, I have a great belief that if you can control a trials bike and ride a trials bike well that you will be able to take that across and do the same on your racing bike whether it be you know, a, a tarmac racing bike or a, or a dirt bike. I, I think that that actually equates to um, learning how to manage yourself as an individual on a piece of machinery. You know, you're a specialist machine operator and trials is what that's all about. It's not about racing someone. Uh, you are trying to get this piece of machinery over particular obstacles without putting your feet down or crashing. And with trials, I came into that uh, at the age of around 15. And it was just, again, it was another decision from my dad. My dad was like, look, um, I don't want you to ride motocross all winter. It was actually part, well, he told me, it could be different, but he told <laughs> me that it was to save money. Um, he couldn't afford me hammering a motocross bike all winter, you know, chains and sp the, the, the Irish weather you know sandpaper uh, abrasive <laughs> yeah you know grit and sand wearing out every moving part on the bike so he was like park up the motocross bike i'll get you a trials bike um you can you can ride the trial series over the winter and uh, i was like accepting and went okay um and got on with it and, and what it taught me was uh the, the, the practice will get results and in trials it's very easy easy to understand improvement because when you're riding on a circuit 
you're just going as fast as you can. And that's a continual problem. You're just constantly trying to go as fast as you can. How do you measure, am I getting any faster? Well, it's not that easy in motocross specifically yeah. to get the feedback that you are because the speed of the circuit changes all the time. That time isn't relevant like an hour game? Yeah, it, it, it's just not easy to get you know an indication that am I actually improving? With trials, it's very clear. You can either ride over the log <laughs> or you cannot. You can either go up the, the river you know section or you cannot. And it's really easy to, you know, identify improvement. So um, that theory of, you know, practice makes you better. That calculation was just so, so clear to me from my time of, of riding trials. And I brought that across then to what I was doing in motocross. And I changed how I practiced everything. Every time I practiced, it wasn't just for the thrill of, you know, hammering around a corner and up over the bumps and up over the jump, but because it's fun. It was like, right, okay, what's the point of today? Right, the point of today is to try and be faster. How can I be faster? All right, how are we going to measure that? Blah, blah, blah. So you just broke the whole thing down. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, and nobody else is involved. It's just you on the bike. Um, so trials is good for that. Uh, in terms of learning skills, absolutely 100% you have clutch, throttle, balance, you know, awareness of foot peg and tilt and vertical axis um you know in motocross you have a lot of horizontal axis but in trials it's all vertical so you know th these things i i just developed a whole new skill set yeah um from coming from trials into motocross and it was class like um so yeah i i, I absolutely support trials as as something that can definitely help any motorcycle racer dependent on any discipline that they're doing um, well, it's obviously with it being off road, people listening to this will understand the link between trials and motocross. But I agree with you for road racing as well. It definitely helped my game, and I know a few other road racers. The strange thing is, the faster things are, uh, whenever you're doing it, there there's no variables in our game. You've got a straight line. You think about braking, move your body. Things are slow. Whereas, see, when you got on a trials bike and you have to go from one rock to the other, and you've got to let the front brake off. <laughs> let the clutch out enough while opening the gas to jump from that rock and then as soon as you land on it close the gas back in the front brake clutch in Indeed. those things uh, don't actually happen so you get a super bike racer like Leon Haslam was probably one of the funniest ones Dougie Lampkin said when he first got him on a trials bike he was thinking this boy rides at 200 miles an hour yeah. because he didn't have that control and I was exactly the same when I went to Dougie Lampkin school with Johnny Ray and uh, the late Craig Jones we couldn't piece it together and once I did that, I think that's why so many of us got hooked because I realised, hang on a second, if I can't do these little things, and that actually, things used to happen to me in a super sport bike, even at Assen, where the bike would G out and almost take off. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I couldn't almost piece together, closing the gas, getting on the brake. Yeah. Trials helped, helped yeah. that. So as strange as it sounds, doing the slow speed stuff, it, it does help even in our game and people won't be able to relate to that, but I'm sure Leon has them. I think he could, he could probably tell you the same story because he was the same. He used to just go in the braking area, brake, hold the clutch in, kick back gears. And once he started riding trials, he got a little bit more finesse. So that's mm -hmm. probably the key word, I think, in trials. Yeah. teaches you finesse. You definitely have to be in control. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's no two ways about it. And you've got to be the guy that's making everything happen. And that translates across to what you're doing on a racing bike. Definitely. And whenever you did come back and rode at Desert Martin, uh, whenever I saw you riding then, it was clear for anybody from the side of the track that you were riding differently. That was a trials rider out there compared to the Gordy that had been riding the year before. 
were you aware of it or did it just happen subconsciously you know when you were riding did you think i'm actually i'm going to change my line or i'm going to stand up or did it just happen because you've been riding a winter of trials i i just i wasn't aware of it um i don't recall being aware of it. what i remember is that uh i had new skills i, I just had a, a, a tool bag full of new skill sets that i was i was able to use to my advantage on the track and the motocross side of things the terrain that we were covering on a motocross track in comparison to the terrain that you're covering in a trial section was so easy. Yeah. And it's like, what have I got to do here? All I've got to do is go as fast as I can. And you've well, got space. Yes. Yeah. Speed is your friend, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like you can, you can, you can, uh, I, I just, I just, I just find that the, the motocross bike, was an easier bike to ride than the, than the trials bike in terms of what we were trying to do um it, it definitely and you only got to learn once like everything you know that you don't have to re- repeatedly keep learning the same thing you learn it once and, and off you go so for me you know having those tricks and so on um that i learned from the trials bike definitely definitely helped me on the motocross bike and um no, I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate that that I had like just going back to my dad. You know, it was um, it was because of him that these things happened that became an advantage to me, um, and that's absolutely just sheer fortune on on my side that I that I had him included in what was going on. Um, very very lucky. You know. And whenever you did then make the transition to adult motocross same as my brother Michael did, you were doing schoolboy and some adult motocross and it was still just for fun then. And then you mentioned before Alan Morrison, who before you, he was the motocross rider from our country that uh, won on the world stage. And then that moment where you really must have realised, hang on a second, you know, you were a teenager and uh, you beat him. So you went and beat your hero. So did things start to register then? Maybe there might be a career in this? There were, yes, the, the, the case of, uh, of that is is absolutely valid um with alan 100 percent uh that that that's true but i had it i had indications before that you know because i had people who i respected as oh he's a good writer mm. you know and i didn't have my category i didn't have myself in that category so there were times when in in my early years of racing that i would end up in races with people that i thought he's he's a fast guy and then I would race against them and I'd be like, oh, I'm not so far away. Yeah. Um, I've, I've done better than I actually thought. You know, so if I, I've, I've surprised myself, which is very inspirational whenever you exceed what you think you are capable of. You then think to yourself, it's a wee bit addictive. You, you think to yourself, well, what, 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 how, how, good could I, how, how good could I get? Um, so it inspires you to keep trying and keep pushing and keep learning and keep practicing and and that happened throughout my career, time after time after a time, and and Alan Morrison was one of those um, occasions which just catapulted me in terms of setting ambitions, mm. um, setting goals. Because your goals do have to constantly change, don't they? Because like you said, yes. you didn't have that ambition when you were a kid. So once you reach it, you can't just go, uh, you know, job done. Yeah, you have to kind of. Go back to the drawing board and go, right, what's the next one? Being realistic, you know, I wasn't a kid that started out racing and said, I want to win a motocross Grand Prix. Mm. I didn't even think to myself, I want to win a British Championship. Mm. I didn't even want to think, 
I want to win an Irish championship. Yeah. What happened was I got indication that it may be possible. And that's when I reset the goals. And it, it's interesting because... And, and my best man at my wedding actually brought this up. And it's only just a few days ago that I, I got talking about this with somebody else. And, and that's why it's fresh in my mind. Um, as a kid, um, when I say kid, right up until the age of 22, uh, on my bedside table, I had a little post-it that I would put on there in January. And I would write down what my goals were for the year. So each night when I went to sleep, I would look at the post-it and I would see them. And each morning I wake up, I would see the post-it and I would read them. And I achieved them all. And that just was each year I would say, I want to be top 10 in an Irish championship or I want to be top 5 in a British championship or I want to be British champion or I want to be top 5 in a Grand Prix. Whatever way it was... I was setting these realistic, achievable goals that were within my reach. Yeah. And it, the, the, the important point is to be able to set something that is realistic and not an easy target so that whenever you go, oh, yeah, I got out of bed this morning, go me, yeah. you know, sign off for the rest of the day. It was just like, let's, let's pick some things that if I'm just 5% or whatever, you know, better, then I could do that. And, and that really, really helped me. And each time you reach that goal, then you just think, wow, I didn't think I could do that. And you go on. And yes, you get setbacks. You maybe have to reset your goals, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that was something that I worked on. And um, it helped me a lot. And, you know, with, the, with, with having respect and having idols and having heroes, um, you aspire to be like them. Um, and... and having the opportunity to race against them gave me an indication of how far away I was from reaching my target. And my target obviously was to be like my heroes, you know, so I was lucky um, that I, I got the chance to, to get close to them, to race against them, to then, you know, maybe beat them. And then you think, okay, I need bigger goals. And, and it just, escalated you know but it's a formula you know a, a success formula and I just kept it the whole way through um, and it worked for me and everybody has to find their own formula for what you know makes them drive and what their ambitions are and all of that there's no special hmm. you know thing that I can tell anybody to, to do that's going to make them you know reach their ultimate goal it's just it's just it just doesn't exist now what you summarized there uh, that falls completely in line with what I've spoken with a lot of journalists about and across the board, not just in motorbike racing, because Northern Ireland has produced so many great sportsmen for such a small country. Mm-hmm. And they always ask, like, how well, what's in the water? So motocross, road racing, golf, amongst other sports. And what you explain there, uh, I think the two main things are being realistic and being respectful. Mm-hmm. I think that's why you do just kind of keep in that... Uh, upward trail because you had respect for your heroes so you kind of looked up to them mm-hmm. and you set realistic targets and yep and every year you said you achieved them but having that respect is the key thing because if you get a cocky kid which generally northern irish kids aren't uh, when they're cocky when they get knocked they get knocked down 10 pegs mm-hmm. whereas when you've got respect you make a knock down one peg and you keep chipping away at it yeah. i think that is the the key and that's why northern ireland produces so many great sports i i i, I... <sighs> I don't know entirely. Um, 
I had my way of going about it and, and it was small steps at a time, you know, I had to do that um, to make me believe that it was achievable. I remember, and you were there in 1992, I think, in Desert Martin, and Grant Langston came across as a guest rider to ride. And my dad got talking to, to Grant's dad, Gerard, and I remember being a kid, stood beside him, and Gerard said, Grant's going to be world champion. Yeah. My dad laughed at him. He said, what? You're in Desert Martin, the kid's <laughs> 12 years of age, you know, blah, blah, blah. Grant was world champion. Yeah. That's the flip side, isn't it? But there's the difference in cultures as well. You know, South African arrogance, you know, for him to stand there and go, hey, my boy is going to be world champion. Well, tip of the hat to you for having such confidence and belief in your kid, you know, at that stage, you know, and he went, it probably was probably about eight or nine years later that he was world champion. But, you know, that's a rare case um, of, of somebody, you know, being able to say, yeah, uh, he's going to do that. And then he did that. There's bound to be multiple, multiple cases of people saying, yeah, I'm going to do this. And they don't. Yeah. For every Grant Langston, there may be 50 nobodies, unfortunately. Absolutely. But it is true. That's an interesting you know. comparison when you think about that. The yeah. Grant Langston came over to Desert Martin and we just knew him as a South African kid. And he didn't know how to jump. Yeah. Because South Africa didn't have the kind of tracks that we had at Desert Martin. Yeah. But at the end of the week, he was flying. He was yeah. winning British Championship races. So, yeah, yeah no, fair play to his dad. He had the foresight to, to see that, yeah, put the pressure on this kid and it could happen. But mm-hmm. maybe it is because of Grant's upbringing then with being South African. He maybe was mentally tough because there might have been many kids that might have just caved and said, you know what, Dad, I don't want to do this anymore. So... It's true, like you say, there is no secret formula. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's got to be individual, I think, to each person. Um, but ambition and figuring out what, how do you get the best from yourself? How do you improve? And if you can learn how to improve, um, you know, the sky's the limit. Yeah. Some people don't improve faster than others. And um, I, I, I was rubbish at school by motocross. I, I, I couldn't see the point of it. For <laughs> me, it was just fun to ride. I was like, it's great. You know, we're riding. It was fun. And it wasn't until later that I, that I recognised the, the advantage, not the advantages, the, the reward for, for winning. Um, and it's difficult to go from youth into adult racing. You've got a lot of contributing um, distractions as a kid. You know, you get to 16, 17 years of age and you're looking for your independence. Alcohol, girls, cars... You know, all of that comes around, social scene, like all of that stuff comes around at a time when it, it really matters. And, you know, you try to suppress that and someone and they're just going to rebel. Yeah. You know. So. But for you, the step from uh, Ireland then to go to England and World Championship, you say the big gateway then was like with Cass Honda, then with Harry Ainsworth? Well, I had um, a season of racing at home my first adult season racing at home I wanted to be Irish and Ulster champion and the riders that I was competing against were riding in the British championship so I was able to measure you know where do I think I could finish you know because of what they were doing um and and then the following year we decided to go and race in the British championship so I had a year where I I was there and I was racing and it was going well I got some podium and I think I ended the championship in seventh position. But I thought to myself, okay, I'm I was I had a job at the time, I wasn't full time professional, and the people that I was racing against and trying to beat 
we're all professionals. So it came down to a deal between Yamaha and Honda, and uh, Honda were able to um, exceed what Yamaha were offering through Harry Ainsworth um, and CAS, his company CAS, offering um, you know a, a little bit extra to, to, to beat the Yamaha deal. And it was Roger Harvey at the time that, that I was negotiating with. And basically I thought that the best thing for me was to live in England, be a professional and ride for a team, as opposed to doing it the way that we had always done it through Russell's motorcycles, you know, which was just a family thing and our own bikes and, you know, me and my dad. And, and, That's right, you always you know, grew up riding Yamaha through Russell's then? Yeah, you know, so what, what happened actually was a negative. Um, we created a, a massive change in the formula, sorry to go back to that word, but I completely switched everything from what I knew and I went into the, the constitu- what I viewed as the constitutional way to be successful and I looked to the professional riders in the UK and I thought, okay, I've got to live in England, I've got to ride in the practice tracks in England and I've got to have a mechanic and I've got to ride for a team and, and this is what we've got to do. And, yeah. and I gave up everything that I thought was a negative. So I, I wiped out social life, friends, alcohol, sex, all that stuff. I was just like, no, no, I'm going to be a rider. Eat, sleep, ride, repeat. That's what I'm going to do. And I became the most miserable existence <laughs> of myself that I have ever known. And my results were terrible. I had no appetite to get out of bed in the morning. Everything about what I was doing was horrible. I hated riding bikes. And it was awful. And it took for me to get to a point of break and go, right, enough's enough. I'm going back home. And I went back home, and once I got organized with my feelings, then I was like, you know, I would like to ride a bike. And I got back on the bike and started riding, and I got the bike in the shape that I wanted it to be, and I started rebuilding all of my confidence and rebuilding all of my ambition, and away I went. And it was a brilliant, brilliant lesson for me to have. Well, you realize that you're not a machine then, you're human. You need to be happy, don't you? You totally. need to have people around you. Yes, no, totally. There's there's needs that each and every one of us must have um, to make us want to be alive and to be alive in a very special way. And, and you need to be alive in a special way to go out and, and you know, try to achieve special things. And um, I had lost that. Um, so, yeah, it, it was good. And with CAS Honda, we um, got everything back on track in a great way. And the team and Harry in particular were very accommodating of me um, to do what I wanted to do. And, you know, hats off to him for, for having confidence in me. But it's possibly because he, he watched me fall to pieces whenever I tried to do it everybody else's way instead yeah. of doing it my way. And, um, yeah, we picked it up and we started winning and won British Championships and won Grand Prix. And it was just fantastic. It really, really was, was way, way, way better than we ever thought it would be. Well, the first uh, motorbike rider that I spoke to was Jeremy McWilliams. He was, um, oh no, sorry, it was Bradley Smith. And then after that was Jeremy McWilliams. And I spoke to Jeremy about the early days when I was a, a kid watching. So obviously I was riding motocross, but then had a, a big uh, interest in road racing. Uh, so Sunday mornings was about watching the races. So my most memorable Jeremy moment was at Donington Park whenever he was riding the 500 Grand Prix in the wet against uh, Rossi and Kenny Roberts in the Aprilia. And six kids in our family, so I was the youngest one. I never got the couch, so I always had to lie on the rug in front of the TV. <laughs> like a dog. Like a dog. <laughs> yeah, everybody just put their feet on me. <laughs> and uh, funny enough, 
I was in exactly the same position on that uh, rug, just lying on my front on the floor, watching the, the first Grand Prix you qualified for, I think, was it? Yeah. And watching you come across punching the air because you'd hole shot it. Yeah. Like, how crazy was that, that your first Grand Prix? But again, we'll go back to the Northern Irish mentality. I don't think any other mentality, you know, it's these cocky kids or somebody that had a dad like Grant Langston's could have achieved what you did mm. because you just... When that Northern Irish way of just being like, oh, yeah, we've qualified, and you just lined up into the gate, and there's, let's say, 30 to 40 riders across there, everyone has the equal chance to be into that first corner first, so you just went and you whole shot it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I recall it really clearly. I'd really struggled that year, and that was the year that I talked about just, just there before, where it had all fallen apart and had gone home and tried to get myself back together. It was, it was the season of 1998, and I I failed awfully at the beginning of the year and got things together. And this was it was actually the day that Uma Baum, um, I remember the news. I think maybe July the second. And I uh, I I whole shot the race in disbelief. You yeah. know, I was so happy to qualify. <laughs> um, and a wee interesting story. Um, I'd gone down to the Park Ferme, which is where you've got to be ten no no less than ten minutes before the start of the race. I brought two left-hand gloves. <laughs> That's was, like a nightmare, isn't it, that you have? I had to run back. <laughs> it was deep sand and it was so hot. And I had to run back to the truck because nobody else knew where my stuff was. And I had to sprint and sprint it back down. I got on the bike and I was at, you know, 180, you know, heart rate. Yeah. Gate drop. I was I was already gone. Like, you know? <laughs> um, and, and I was so happy that it that it, that it led the race, and I knew that it was on Eurosport Live. And uh, oh yeah, we were watching. The, the, there was a massive um, screen. that a massive big uh, big screen, and I knew that it was being broadcast live. And I, and I, and I remember going <laughs> down the start straight after the lap one, and I looked at the big screen. I could see myself live on the television, and I did a big massive fist pump. Um, I was just totally totally you know live in the moment um and it was great it, it, it was it was it was what you know racing then was all about for me you know and it was a massive breakthrough for me to get into that grand prix and um just totally embracing the moment um you, you have these things you know at that stage i wasn't a championship contender it was just a huge huge step you know moment for me to even qualify and, and get get into that category um so i made sure i enjoyed it that's for sure uh, that that moment though i mean whole shot and then coming across and we're watching and you we didn't have hd back then so then we're looking and going is that gordy leading and then like oh he's his hand slipped no no he's punching the air and that was just yeah for a kid of my age and i'm sure so many other kids that just, well, as good as you felt, can you imagine how it was for us? Because that was just somebody from home, just led in front of all the legends that we know. We just yeah. talked about probably guys like Fred Bolley was even there at that stage. Yeah. So for us seeing Gordon Crocker, you know, you, you mentioned even in Schoolboys, it wasn't like you set the word the light and we said like, nah, this is going to be the next sensation. You just kept kind of kept chipping away at it. And then you just whole shot at a Grand Prix. Yeah. How the hell did this happen? I know. It, it, it's just... Um it's just a feel-good thing, isn't it? You know, whenever you have people that you know and friends and you just see their path. And like I mentioned before, it just black lines, the, the superhero, you yeah. know, um, these guys. It, it just gives you the idea that the, the dangling carrot's a wee bit closer than you thought it may have been. Um, 
and I had a lot of cases of that, you know, because of the steps of progression that I went through with the different levels that I raced at, racing against some of my heroes and getting the chance to really understand how far away I was, you know, from being able to do what I, what I, what I eventually was able to do. And but because, same when you were a kid, if there was two of you, you wanted to beat him. So if you were getting beat on the world scene and there was 20 guys ahead of you, I think that's inbuilt in you. From your dad, he taught you, yeah, if there's winners and there's losers, you ain't first, you're last. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that sort yeah. of way. And so you wanted to improve to, to win. you got to believe that you can. You know, ultimately, if you don't think that you can win or you don't think that you can get to that goal of position, whether it be top 10 or top 5, you're not going to invest in yourself. You're not going to take the risk. You're not going to put yourself, you know, through pain. You, what would be the point of taking the pain and putting yourself in risk if you ultimately don't think you're going to get the reward of the goal that you set out to have and and that was what it was all about for me I, I had to absolutely believe that I could do it it's, it's betting on yourself you yeah. know um, it, it is that um, you've, you've, you've got to invest in what you think you're capable of and I did it thanks to the way my father introduced me it was in little steps you yeah. know and, and that protected me you know going all in far too at the deep end I would have drowned yeah too much you know? pressure yeah. on a kid too much pressure is not a good thing I think there's a, a healthy amount of pressure that can just uh, let you flourish and that's what you did and that's why you achieved more than yeah I think anybody could imagine when they saw you at 10 or 15 or whatever well, look at your own example. You know, you didn't set out to, to have your racing career and sign up to a world championship and ride around at the back in your first day out. Like, you don't, yeah. you don't do that. Like, that's, that's teaching you to be a loser, you know. You, you've got to come in and, you know, step by step be progressing and try and get there to, to, to be in a position where you think, if I was just a bit better, I could be top ten. If I was just a bit better, I'd be five, I'd be one. And that's the way I think that, you know, it, it, it's most likely that you'll have success. Is that constant changing goals? You have to always kind of move the goalposts and like that post-it note you had beside your bed. That's what that was doing, you know, mm -hmm. because if you set one there and it's like to be world champion and that's it and then like 10 years off. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is kind of set each stage and then you reach that one and you achieved it every year. Mm -hmm. Okay, that one's done. What's the next one? And that's what you have to do if you're really going to improve in, in sport. I don't actually remember. When was your first World Championship podium then? Because then you led that race to... That was 98, was it? Was it was year 2000. 2000. You so did? how it went was... Year 98 was my horrendous year where, you know, I turned professional, moved to England, started riding Honda. You know, all went awful. Had to do a major reset, you know, and, and I got it back together. So I, I went to my first season of doing the full world championship was 1998 i did the last five rounds in 97 but 98 was like right let's do the full season went to spain didn't qualify had all those problems effectively quit the sport got myself back together once i was getting my mum's home cooked dinner and yeah. sleeping in my own bed you know sorted that out came back into 1999 didn't qualify again at round one in Spain. Qualified for all the rest of them. Ended the season in 13th in the overall championship. Year 2000. Turned up at Spain. 
previous two years I hadn't qualified. Yeah. So turned up at Spain in the year 2000, qualified in 23rd position. Happy days. I'm in the race. Great. <laughs> um, gate dropped on Sunday morning. I whole shot the race. Won it. Couldn't believe it. Um, First round of the year then you went and won it, leading the World Championship. Yeah. yeah. That's fairy tale, isn't yeah. it? You must be students up at the podium going... It was just seriously unbelievable. I was like, how has this happened? Why is everybody going so slow? Yeah. This just seems like a prank. <laughs> you know, it was that easy. And that taught me, I can do this. If I can win this one, why can't I win all the other ones? Why can't I win the World Championship? Of course, it's not an easy thing to do. And I didn't actually do that. No, but it's the realisation that you But it really could. was like, yeah, hey, if I can do it for this round, get myself organised for the others and do plenty of prep and sort out the bike and everything else. You know, but mega absolutely just mega in terms of you know what i had been the two seasons before not even qualifying for the race and then getting there and qualifying and being satisfied at that and then purely the, the, you know getting the start and, and away i went I, I was just like a just gone just a rocket i'm going um and, and i was it was enough to win the race but that continuity that you had with CAS Honda and Harry Ainsworth then that amounted to the best year of your career. Best, it was incredible. 2001 then, whenever you finished the top three yeah. in the World Championship. Yeah, well, I just looked at it as the same as before. You know, I had a formula and this is what I do and I ride these bikes and this is the team and, and this is how we get better and we just constantly have this strive to be better. And, and I tr- stayed loyal, turned down other offers and stayed there and... and it was working for me and we won British championships. We won um, world level um, four Grand Prix and we got third in the championship and it same old story. It should have been second. But yeah, I remember the last round. There was a real... Yeah, stuff happened. Yeah. But it, in the end, you know, I didn't have enough margin um, to cover me for those things happening and, and that's the way it went. And um, It was fine. I'm, I'm not better. Um, I look at it and I think, right, right, third, good. You know, almost, almost, almost second. It was very, very small margin, but um, we, 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 we. I, I then left CAS at the end of that year. Looking back at that time, I thought that we were down technically. Um, yeah, because it was a privateer effort with CAS. It was a privateer effort, and I felt that I was competing against Factory Yamaha, Factory Suzuki, Factory Kawasaki, and I was just like, "Wow, be <laughs> something," you know. I'm doing all I can. Why am I getting beat? And it just felt like I needed factory support so that we changed the bike for every venue, every terrain. Because at that time with the CIS Honda, we weren't doing that. We were making minimal, minimal changes to the bike. And I thought, this can't be right. How can we be riding on hard pack one week and deep sand the next? And we're just changing a few clickers on the suspension. That That's wrong. Yeah. You know? So in my head... You know, I had this idea that the factory teams would be would be doing so much more to to custom the bike for the terrain, and at the time, the best option in my mind was to move to the KTM factory team, and I did. Um, they'd be dominant in one two five, dominant in the open class. They put their focus on the two fifty class, and I thought, okay, let's 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 go with them, and it was a disaster. They they couldn't make a good motorbike, and they didn't, and they never did, for that category. Um, I stayed one season and then went back to CIS the following year. I tried to go back to my original formula. Um, the sport changed somewhat. We 
then had the evolution of four stroke. Um, so we jumped from two strokes onto four strokes. I was riding then four strokes, which was okay. They also merged two classes into one class. They went from having to 250 class and open class and they merged it into just having this MX1 class. Yeah. So I was up against, you know, a lot more competition. Um, and it was fine. Um, I had a lot of podiums that year. That was 2003. I had a lot of podiums and it was okay. But I had multiple uh, small injuries, you know, a broken wrist, a broken collarbone, a broken finger, you know, a tweaked knee. There was all of these little nonsense injuries that were keeping me out of, you know, continually training and racing. And um, I won the British Championship convincingly that year, which was great. But on the world scene, I had some podiums, but I didn't ever exceed the third place that I'd had in, in 2001. And after that, I just felt like I had a lot of injuries and it just went down, you know, and, and yeah. So 01 um, was my best season and, and I look back at it with, you know, great romance as, as, as how mega it was and it was just, just great, really enjoyed it. But still, for years after that, what you were doing at the Belfast Supercross and the Odyssey, I remember being at those races and because you were the, the home hero, I mean, the the atmosphere was was incredible well the local man i mean that's ultimately the position i was in and it's like you referred to desert martin the british championships it's the same you yeah know, they were I, on the bankings where people were cheering the yeah, banners you know i was lucky that i was i was the home guy and, and the home crowd wanted a home winner and and that's you know just who who i happened to be at that time and the odyssey arena supercross races yes they were fantastic um the, the home support they really get into it it was a real period where I think Belfast was feeling a real you know breath of fresh air the, the stadium had been built there was new venues sorry it was a new venue and new events were coming and, and this was a first of its kind to be held in Belfast and there was a lot of excitement and um, it was good and, and I loved it um, the crowd and all of that stuff and, and the real connection um to the local heroes and the local crowd it was really strong it was good and now with your work with, with honda are you still working along with the uh, the kids then in like the 150 or what's your no. role now um i did that for four years as a coach and as a as a championship um organizer series series uh, event manager um and was that something that you could pass down your experience because you know, you, you can look back with hindsight and you make some good moves and some mistakes. Did you then pass your experience down to the kids or is it hard to, to kind of talk to the ones that are starting out at such a, a young age? No, I, I felt that I did have a lot to contribute as a coach and as someone who had previously um, been in their position. I The age group was 11 to 14. They were racing in on the international stage it was racing on you know grand prix tracks that's not something that i did when i was that age you know my yeah. father intentionally kept me low-key riding just the practice tracks at home and riding just the the local national championships and regional championships and and that's so, that, so it was very different but it, but what what i was able to do it was give them my view on how to operate the machine so in terms of practical lessons and techniques and 
you know, skills of how to ride the bike. That was what I had to contribute. And, you know, I kept away from giving them career advice or, you know, parents and kid dynamics. You know, I totally excluded myself from that because it's un- unique to each and every person um, how, how they go through their their younger years with their parents and their racing but in terms of getting the bike around the track I had something to give them and I was able to, to you know to coach and, and provide them with my experiences and information that I had for that so that was good and I enjoyed it and I got a lot of reward um, um, personal satisfaction out of seeing um, a young person um, develop and grow um, whilst I was giving them some guidance. So, you know, I felt it really, really good um, to do that. Um, my job within Honda has changed a lot since then. Um, I moved then into a managerial role, role uh, for all of the motocross racing activity on the global stage, uh, also as well the Enduro World Championship. So I now work as a, as a, as a coordinator of the racing activities so that's handling everything from negotiating the riders and the teams that will be you know honda riders and honda teams and negotiating the budgets and then negotiating the sponsors and the supply of bikes and parts and money and bonus and, and everything like that um it's it's changed a lot for me um what i'm doing now and i've been doing that now for four years um, and it's good. I, I, I'm working in my specialist field. I understand all of the different tiers that um, I'm associated to, you know, right from rider through to team, through to mechanic, through to sponsor, through to manufacturer. I have a good understanding of what they're all uh, desiring and needing um, and ultimately trying to just, you know, give them the tools to do the job to reach their ambitions and also to satisfy the objectives of what Honda are investing for. You know, ultimately Honda have a business model of they manufacture off-road racing bikes and they want to promote them in the world championship by showcasing them ahead of all of the other manufacturers' models. Um, you know, so I'm still going racing and I'm still, you know, analysing, right, what have we got? What can we do? What's the best way of going about it and you know whenever we do reach our goals um you know we get the success that we set out to do that's very rewarding and satisfying for me and i feel good about myself um i have been in different circumstances where i've worked outside of motocross and you're just like this bank of information for the specialist field in motocross that you can't use any of that information yeah your experience and yeah and it's, it's a you feel like such a derelict you're you're like my gosh i have <laughs> so much information and knowledge about this particular topic but yet there's a very niche area yeah. that i can use it um so i do like the fact that i'm back in the arena of racing and, and motocross and dirt bikes where i'm able to to use you know the, the 30 years of study um, that, I, that I put into it when I was a writer, a, a, a fan and a writer. Um, so it's good um, where I've ended up. It's, it's really good. That's the important thing is while you're a writer, you're still remaining a fan. And that proves your dad, uh, Davies' theory, right? You're 41, 
you're still involved in the sport because you love it. And there's a lot of guys that are sickened with it before they're 30 and just get out of there because it's too too much at an early age and you still have the desire to be involved. You love it. It's very difficult to come out the other side of your racing career and have an appetite to stay involved in it. You know, I exhausted everything that I did in the racing, you know, um, training-wise, traveling-wise, racing-wise, injury-wise. That takes a big toll. There's a lot of sacrifices. And you gen- I-, I felt that whenever I came out the other side of my racing career, I was just like, right, <laughs> what are we going to do now? You know, what else is there to do? And unfortunately, like so many, you know, ex-racers, there's a serious surplus of riders that don't have qualifications, don't have trades, don't have skills, don't have anything to offer the world in terms of employment and, and taking up something to do and because you're such a specialist in yeah, that sport yeah, absolutely um and you do it through the years when you know other people are getting diplomas and degrees you know yeah. in, in their trades and you know setting themselves up for the rest of their lives to, to work whereas if you go at it from a youth you do your passion and your hobby and yes it can turn into a pre- profession where you get a few quid but most of the time you reach the age of 30 as a dirt bike guy yeah. and that's it. And it's like, okay, welcome to the real world. What are you <laughs> going to do for a living for the next 30 years? Yeah. Well, I don't have anything to offer. What is there in motocross? Well, all of the jobs are taken. There's not very many, you know, so I am really aware of how fortunate I am to, to get into the position where I have and, and I, and I like the job that I do. Uh, like I said, I'm still going racing. You know, I still have ambitions. I don't yeah. have the post-its on this side of my bed <laughs> anymore. But I have targets that I want to that I want to reach whenever we're racing. Like you know. Now you have to keep striving to to go forward. But what we've talked about through your whole career, that's why you were the first motocross rider that I wanted to to talk to because. Growing up, uh, exactly like Jeremy McWilliams, that's why as soon as I got back to Northern Ireland, I called Jeremy and said, Jeremy, I want to speak to you. Yeah. And that's why I thought before the we're sat here and our whistle and flutes ready for the Irish Motorbike Awards and uh, whatever I called you and said, right, God, I want to I want to sit down and talk to you. I want uh, you to be the first mud boy that I talked to. So yeah. hopefully, um, like we discussed, some of the kids that maybe weren't even alive yeah. <laughs> whenever you were achieving what you were achieving can listen to this and and understand the impact you had on our sport, uh, not just for motocross riders, but even for, well, want to be motocross riders like me and Johnny. We weren't good enough at motocross, so we went road racing. Yeah, but like, it's interesting, you know, it's people ask me about, you know, if I ever had any interest to race, you know, tarmac and short circuits and so on. And honestly, I was born into a motocross family and I was fed all of the fertilizer to make me love motocross you know our summer holidays was going to 500 grand Prix motocross <laughs> races you know so i was looking at dave thorpe and andre mallard and georgia bay and erdra boers and jean michel beale and i was just like those guys are gods yeah. everybody has so much respect for them i want to be like them yeah you know so i was just fed this um and and it was totally natural i think for me to want to to be like those heroes that my parents exposed me to um i didn't go and watch you know road race grand prix 
you know, the Freddie Spencers, the Wayne Gardners, you know, those guys, the Kevin Swans, that era of the 80s whenever I was a kid. I, I we, we had motorcycle news, which was like once every Wednesday. Yeah. You know, TV, I didn't see it. I couldn't tell you anything about road racing in the 80s and 90s because like, I just didn't have access to to know what was cool about it. And, and that made me... Um, one-dimensional you know so it was all just motocross that way it's different nowadays you know access to to watching races and everything else has changed so so much um but you know um i I just had i was asked the other day you know oh have you any advice for kids these days and i'm like well you know do your school work and find something that you love and you know go after it um and i suppose that is really what happened to me but mine was quite channeled you know, um, because of my family circumstance, it was a little channeled towards, here's motocross, Gordon, you know, look how cool it is. And yeah. I was like, yeah, it is really cool. I would like to be like that. Um, you know, so um, as a parent, you know, what way do you guide your kid through through racing and all of the rest of it? I think it's just individual to every case. Um, oh, we've had a hell of a career and we've listed a lot of, uh, we talked about the British Championship wins and uh winning Grand Prix, finishing top three in the world after an entire season. So we'll just close it out before we go down because there's a lot of beer to be drank down at the, the awards. <laughs> what would you say is uh, the best moment? For me in racing, um, ultimately winning a motocross Grand Prix. Like Probably that, the first one. The first one was a surprise. It felt like a fluke. <laughs> um, there were others that were better. Um but really, you know, getting to that level, that moment of realization of, hey, today you were the best guy um, in the world. You know, that's really something, um, you know, from where I started out and why I started riding. So, you know, absolutely, you know, that is is just the, the, the pinnacle um, to, to be able to, to sit back and go, well, how good were you? Well, I, I was the best guy in the world. Yeah, it wasn't a fluke then, because you did it again and again. Yeah, like, you know, so the other occasions, the first one was, was obviously amazing and just a, a massive moment of realisation, but there were other occasions that absolutely fully endorsed, you know, where I was as a rider, and um, I think my third Grand Prix win was a particularly special one. I think we were in Genk in Belgium, and Pichon and myself lapped all the way up to eighth place, and we were, I think, a minute and ten seconds ahead of third place. Wow. You know, it was we were in a, a real duel, him and I, and we just pushed, 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 and every lap we were getting faster, 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 faster. And and, and I have the timesheets. It's it's a bit OCD, but I have the timesheets <laughs> framed at home in the office of, of the Grand Prix that I won. And I looked at the times and I looked at the names. And I'm like, wow, that's yeah. wow. You know, so... In terms of what was my best Grand Prix win, definitely the one in Genk. Um, but I had already won a couple of Grand Prix before that, so it wasn't a surprise. It was just a wee bit like, yeah, I'm I'm still okay. Yeah. Like feeling, you know. Um, so yeah, winning Grand Prix, no no question about it. That's definitely the highlight of my career. As we'd say from uh, this part of the world, you, you did all right for yourself. <laughs> You're fairly talked to her. <laughs> and thanks for, for that, Gordy. We'll go downstairs and uh, yep. important to get ourselves a beer in our hand and get ready for the night's crack. Indeed. Most welcome. Thank yep. you, Gordy. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Cheers.